when first-generation immigrants move over to Canada, they dream of the children being lawyers or doctors or engineers in hope that their children will live a more comfortable life than they have. What happens when these children choose to be an actor instead of an accountant? What happens when the child chooses to be a tattoo artist instead of a nurse? How can you disappoint your parent who has sacrificed their life for you to have a better one? How can someone as a parent be more supportive of their child who has chosen another path? Today, Paul Sun Hyung Lee from Kim's Convenience provides some advice on how to manage this relationship for both the parents and the children. We also talk about life in the Kim's Convenience set, the Me Too movement, and the intricacies of hosting the show Canada's Smartest Person Jr. This is part two of my conversation with Paul. If you haven't listened to part one, I strongly recommend you go back and listen to it. But if you want to get started right now with part two, you can do that as well. You can do whatever you want. You're the one listening to the podcast. Be advised, this episode contains adult content, strong language, and excessive giggling. This is Postacle Chronicles, and I'm your host, Matt Falk. Uh, you know, I made peace with myself that I was never going to be a lead on a show, but I was going to learn as much as I can, could from the roles that I did get. And I carved myself a pretty decent career, you know. It's just got the work. And then in 2003, I booked a series called uh, Train 48. And it was part of a large ensemble cast, and it was set on a go train that was coming home from downtown Toronto out to Burlington. And the go train culture back then, before smartphones, where people used to talk to each other. And uh, <laughs> they would they would get to know, because the same people would be riding a train, and they'd work in different places, but they would, they would know each other, and they'd be train buddies. Uh, and it was a phenomenon that I, I think still happens. But back then, it was way there was more of that, uh, and it was based on an Australian show of the same premise. And it was I was part of a large ensemble, great ensemble cast, and um, that was the the thing about Train Forty Eight was all the dialogue was improvised, and we would shoot, edit, and air an episode the same day. So we'd shoot in the morning, they would edit it, and then that night, what we shot would be on the air, and the the draw for that was we would there would be one group that would talk about current events. And so you'd watch the news, our show would come on, and you'd see characters on a train, fictitious train, talking about what you had just seen. So that was that was the thing. And I learned a tremendous amount because that was the first time I'd ever been part of a large cast in a, in a continuous uh, role. And we did over 300 episodes of that, and I learned a tremendous amount of, you know, how to be present, how to do this, how to do that. So, and it also helped my career a little bit, it opened up doors because I did fairly well in the show, even though the show was was not greatly received. Do you know where I can find this? 300 Amazon episodes? Amazon Prime. <laughs> it's on Amazon Prime. Oh, it okay. just dropped. Only Amazon Prime. Is there anywhere uh, else? Check YouTube. Okay, will do. Yeah, yeah definitely but will. It's, it, but here's the thing. I'm going to tell you, it looks like shit. <laughs> it's uh, low, no budget. Uh, two cameras, practical lighting, two cameras, and a boom operator. We're all pretty much just sitting there talking to each other. Um, but it is, we were really ahead of the curve. But it was the first time um, uh, I, I had, my character was played a geek. Um, he had uh, the first ever uh, uh, Sony uh, phone, like smartphone, right? Uh, and that premiered on, on the show. Um, 
my character was in a very progressive relationship with the pretty white woman, you know, and we actually had a baby who is, you know, played by my son. Oh, um, really? Yeah. So my infant, oh. my, my eldest, well, my firstborn, he was three months old and the writers wrote the fact in that we had this little baby on the train. So, you know, he was on the show. Um, so, the, yeah, that was so a tremendous experience. Anyways, um, so Ince Choi and I, uh, we're, we're sort of, I, I was a little bit ahead of him. He was just getting out of York University and um, he had uh, taken part in this uh, playwriting um, workshop uh, with Fujian Theatre Company uh, called the, the Potluck. Uh, kitchen, kitchen playwriting unit. And um, he was getting into writing because a lot, like a lot of us, when we got out of school, it was like, there, there are no real parts for Asians. So what do we do? So he was creating, he was trying to create his own work. And he wrote these two scenes um, and they went over so well that Lina, uh, Nina Lee Aquino, who was the artistic director of Fujian at the time, said, you got to turn this into a full-length play. So he started working, thus began the five-year odyssey of him working on Kim's Convenience, the play, off and on. And uh, he contacted me because he got some seed money from the Toronto Diaspora Dialogues to present these two scenes. But he needed an older Korean actor to read for the part. So he called me. Uh, I didn't really know him. We kind of bumped into each other auditions here and there. But I'd seen his work, and he was, he's great. Like, Ince Choi is so talented yeah like i it's off the charts how crazy good he is at everything he wants to do um so i went in and uh, i remember it was myself and his sister amy who were reading for the part of janet and appa and um there was something about these two scenes that just immediately captured captured me and what it was like in the scenes you know they're not even in the play anymore you know, it was about, uh, you know, I can't even remember, but it was like, that was, I read it and it was like, that's my dad in that scene. And you have to realize that growing up, I had a great childhood, but the one big thing I think a lot of immigrant children of a certain age would, would recognize this is the fact that I wanted nothing to do with my heritage. I didn't want to be Korean growing up. I want to be Canadian. I wanted to fit in. I didn't want the stinky lunch. I wanted sandwiches. I wanted I wanted to just be one of the other kids. And, um, you know, I didn't want to go to Korean school. So I really actively disliked that. I didn't want to learn the piano. I didn't want to do all these things that I'm regretting right now. I wish I'd stuck with. But back then, yeah, I did not want to do have anything to do with Korean or being Korean. And uh, when I became an actor, especially an Asian actor, you have to do all these accents because they can't write parts for Asians without accents. Mm -hmm. So I could do Chinese, I could do Japanese, I could do some Filipino, but I couldn't do Korean. Huge block. Uh, sounded Russian. It's awful. <laughs> awful. Um, and then I, I read these two scenes and uh, it was just like something finally just sort of clicked in it because it was just so pure and so authentic and it was just like... Oh, and my dad's voice started coming out. And when Ince heard that, he was like, that's the voice. That's Appa's voice. And it was it was this great moment because he finally, we, we sort of found each other in that sense. And he said, you know, there's somebody that he could write with a voice in mind. And on and off over the next five years, he, he would do, uh, he would write, expand into a full-length play and try to find who the story was. And I think originally, because uh, Jung was in it, and I think originally it was going to be a vehicle for Ince, and he was going to play all the parts, actually, like in a great, really cool theatrical way. But the logistics of that became a little bit too much. And then he was going to be, uh, he was just going to be Jung, or he was going to be Appa. And it just sort of worked out 
through the different the many workshops that it suddenly became a story with Appa and Janet at the center. They're the funniest parts. They're the parts that audiences would connect to the most because we do workshops. Uh, and a workshop is the actors come in with the script. We'll read it out loud. We'll have questions to the author, uh, to the playwright. We'll make suggestions or this or that. Uh, the playwright will then go back and take into consideration the things that he's heard. Not always, but sometimes, you you know, it, it's it's a great way of just sort of brainstorming. And then at the end of the workshop, like, which would be like three or four days, we would do a public reading. And so the pub, you know, audiences would come in and we just read out the play. And the public readings always went over so well. Ince is a very, very talented writer and very funny writing. So we did that. Um, so we flash forward five years later. He finishes the play. He's done. He's like, he's been through the Shakespeare Conservatory, the Brigham Young Conservatory at, at, at Stratford. He's been through the Soul Pepper Academy in that time. He's had a kid. You know, that, that much time yeah. had passed. What year was this? This was 2010. 2010. He finally finishes it. So he shops it around. And every major theater company in Toronto turned it down. Really? They all said no. Thank you. They're all really nice about it, but they're like, no, Soul Pepper turned it down. Right? He was part of it. Um, they turned it down because if you read it, you kind of go, here's the thing. You look at it and you go, oh, okay, it's a very simple story. Simple structure. Oh, it's about immigrants. Oh, okay. It's Oh, it's written in a, it looks like a patois sort of because he writes up uh, the way he sounds, right? Yeah. Okay. And so like people are like, okay, I could just see them going, yeah, and just sort of passing it. So he had been working on it for so long, he needed to see it on stage at least once. So he entered it into the new play competition for the Toronto Fringe Festival, and he won. He wins a slot in the Fringe for free. He asked for the biggest venue, which at the time was a Bathurst Street Theatre, sat 200 people. Um, and we wanted a, a venue as well that was over an hour, because usually there's a time restriction for Fringe shows. So we got the 90-minute the, the slot, and we all donated our time to act in it. Um, and, you know, we lost our director early on because Wendy Mangesha was originally supposed to direct uh, the show, but she got an offer from Stratford. So it's like, yeah, go, go to Stratford, get paid big bucks instead of doing this fringe show. Like everybody understood, but we all sort of had to then really sort of bear down and Ince became that outside eye. And we all worked at it, you know, in terms of just sort of making these choices and stuff. And Ince was overseeing everything and, he, you know, he was directing it. And then, uh, you know, when the play premiered, it went bananas. Like, we sold out every single show. Uh, it got to the point where you couldn't get a ticket. All the events tickets had been sold by the second day. The only way you could see the show is if you lined up early to buy a ticket. And uh, people started lining up an hour, two hours, throughout four hours before our show to get a ticket. Now, Bathurst Street, there's no shade. Back then, there was no shade. That gigantic condo that's there now mm -hmm. wasn't there. And so if you were standing on Bathurst Street in July, you were getting hit by the sun. And people were lined up for like four hours in that brutal heat oh, to really? see the show. Yeah. And so the show won, you know, uh, best of fringe, patrons pick. We did extra shows and it went uh, up to North York for, yeah, best of fringe, uh, the best of the fringe festival up there. So we, we did some more performances up there uh, in North York that sold out all those shows as well. And then all the theater companies that said no, came knocking on the door and say, hey, we'd love to present Kim's Convenience on our main stages. They're probably shooting themselves in the foot. Well, yeah, you know, and it's it's like, and I say, it's like Shakespeare. 
Yes, I'm com- I'm comparing Kim's convenience to Sha- <laughs> William fucking Shakespeare. <laughs> Get over it. But in the sense that you know, you read when you read mm-hmm. Shakespearean um, the plays on the page. If you read in your head, you're like, "What the fuck is he saying? What?" So when somebody speaks it out loud, and you suddenly go, "Oh, okay," you need to hear it because it's phonetically. It's kind fun- of, yeah, yeah, in that sense, right? Same with Kim's. I think when you see it performed. It's so much different from reading it off the page because you have no frame of reference on the page. But when you see an actor perform it, you know, and I'm going to say I did a good job. I'll just say that right now. (laughs) No, yeah, go for it. I'm I'm humble about it, but I did a good job. Uh, And that's people look at it and go, oh, my God, there's so much more depth to this piece than we thought there was, you know, and that's that's the thing. Um, And it's also symptomatic of like the either. The types of plays, you know, ethnic plays that have been released up till then, um, you know, it, it's just and what people thought of them, what these primarily white theater companies thought of these pieces. So, you know, I think that really rocked their boat. And like when they saw it performed and saw how the audiences responded to it. And again, you know, I say this, but it, it is a harsh reality. There, there's a lot of change that's going on. We're getting a lot of opportunities right now because people are making money. Black Panther made over a billion dollars if it hadn't if it had tanked we wouldn't be talking about the marvel universe with you know chad boseman uh chadwick boseman is that his name the guy who plays black panther yeah he wouldn't be part of this discussion crazy rich asians same thing if the audiences weren't there to support it we wouldn't be talking sequel we'd be the you know abc nbc all these different uh, production companies wouldn't be commissioning shows with all Asian leads or this that right. wouldn't be happening because we've been saying for decades there's a wealth of talent you guys should you need to focus on these stories but they never have until they started making money yeah. now the flip side of that is you also have to be excellent right the cast of Crazy Rich Asians Black Panther they brought it storytelling yeah. like above it was exceptional yeah. and you have to be exceptional in order to get that opportunity, but to get more opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, as a community, you always go, oh, please don't suck, please don't suck, please don't suck. Because a win for them is a win for everybody. A loss for them is a loss for everybody. Um, but yeah, so that's what happened with Kim's. They got picked up. Uh, Soul Pepper uh, in, in, eventually went with Soul Pepper Theater Company because he knew they would grow the show the way uh, he wanted it. And it was tremendous, and then that's that's how the crazy ride started. And then uh, we premiered on the Soul Pepper stages, the main stage, um, which was a huge a dream come true for me. For years, I'd wanted to be on that particular stage with that particular company because they had, in my estimation, the best actors, the best crafted work, uh, the best production values. It was just, you know, you look, you know, when you when you see the best, you want to be part of that best, yes. right? Uh, and I never ever thought I'd be on those stages again. And how ironic it was that I would sneak onto those stages by being part of Kim's Convenience, right? Uh, and then, you know, that went over so well. They asked him, so what do you want to do? He says, I want to tour the nation. So they set up a national tour, and we toured all across Canada. We did, like, uh, 10 cities in Canada, um, you know, and the main stages as well. And then, it, you know, it, uh, from that point on, I knew um, quite early on um, – Yvonne Fetzan, who is who was uh, the executive producer on the show, and like he's really the guiding force, the man who really brought Kim's Convenience to television. Um, he came and saw Albert Schultz brought him to uh, a dress rehearsal before we even premiered on on the Soul Pepper stage, and 
Yvonne was in tears. Okay, he's a child of immigrants. Yeah. And he saw so much of his family there. And he knew then um, that this was a show that wasn't just going to appeal to Korean audiences or Asian audiences. It was going to have this universal appeal. And so he, uh, you know, he he sort of championed it. And he'd been working, you know, with Thunderbird Productions. And this was the first show that they sort of... Uh, that he had, he he'd optioned it, they developed it, sold it to CBC, and uh, in the the summer of 2016, we went to camera and shot our first season. Do you prefer camera or on stage? I love being on stage because of the rehearsal and the immediacy uh, of being there, and you have to be in the moment. There's no second takes. I love feeling the energy from the audience, and every audience is different. Um, it's like that rush is way more addictive than drugs. Um, and it's great because you can just, it's a, it's a different dynamic. The audience is part of it. I love television because, uh, it's a different set of challenges. Um, but you can reach way more people with television. I have to be frank. The pay is way better on TV, (laughs) which is cool. Um, and, uh, you get to tell different stories on television. I mean, as much as I love doing the the production of Kim's, we did four. I did four hundred and eighty one performances. Those are just performances. We're not talking rehearsals, dress rehearsals, this and that. Like if we're counting all that stuff, I've done it over a thousand times, um, and it's great. I've learned a ton, but you're telling the same story again and again and again. Whereas on TV, one of the biggest joys for me is like new lines. I get new lines, right? Yeah. And so, um, and and different worlds to sort of inhabit, and different challenges. And so, yeah, I love, I love the television world as well. Like they're both. It's like two children, right? <laughs> Don't make me choose, okay. but I'll choose the one that makes more money. <laughs> okay. Um, on the set, I'm just gonna list the description. Yeah. And then could you just tell us who would fit on the cast of Kim's Convenience Family? Okay. Who would fit this the best? Okay. So on that cast, who do you think is the funniest? Not like off camera, like just like on set. Like who do you think is the funniest? Me, no. Uh, <laughs> on ca- uh, I would, you know, honestly, it would have to be Amanda Bruegel with um, uh, Andrew Fung close second. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and Ben Boshaman. That's three people. <laughs> that's three. I know. That's how talented that. That's how talented the cast is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, who do you think? Just like off stage, like who do you think is most likely to like cry at an emotional moment? Like me. Yeah. Yeah. I cried everything, man. It's, it's embarrassing. Um, who do you think is the nicest? Who's the nicest? Yeah, like the random acts of kindness. Oh, you know, every fuck, everybody's great. Uh random who's the nicest? Or who did something that's like yeah, no, outstanding everybody. Everyone, no, everyone, like yeah. honestly, like everybody is so you have to you have to you have to realize the Kim set is an outlier it's an anomaly you have people coming on going what the fuck is going on like you guys are like so nice like what what is going on right like it freaks people out um but who i you know andrew fung let me say andrew um who do you think is the best dressed like when they come on to the set and then like before like not on the show but like andrew fung yeah yeah man shout out to andrew yeah no he's styling (laughs) no he is so he's styling and especially with yeah. this next season coming up, because his costume has changed too, yeah. right? Because he was in the back room, and now he's he's part of uh, head up, like not the head up, but the management team. So he's wearing some styling suits. So he's yeah. For the two seasons so far, yep. Um, what's your favorite episode? Oh God, no! Don't make me choose <laughs> my favorite episode or one that you thought that you did well in, or 
one that you're very proud of or one that you're very proud of another co-star yeah no god uh the first one that comes to your mind yeah no you can revise it later if you want (laughs) no i you know i had so much fun i mean i remember the episode that we laughed the most on was the one with the, the the best before one where everybody thinks it's uh where everybody has the runs basically up eats oh, the ravioli yeah. and you know he has that that was ridiculous how much uh and andrea bang and i had so much fun pretending that we're pooping our pants oh, really? and the makeup department was brilliant because um uh suzanne benoit who is a, a, my makeup artist and, and gerilyn um they would uh they darkened our eyes and made us look pale and gave us the sweat and yeah. we looked awful uh and that's fun to play it's fun to play sick uh, yeah. When you're doing that, so we we did that. That was a lot of fun to shoot. Um, I, I'm always, you know, like blown away. There are all these great individual moments that I had with everybody in the cast, like with Andrea. There's so many of like the emotional stuff, like when uh, the rude kid when I flicked uh, with the flick, yeah. you know, in the fridge. Her like being so vulnerable and just like crying. It was really unexpected. Like she just brought it to, for that scene, and then the final episode. Um, with the the church singing contest, I think every that was an amazing showcase for everybody uh, on there to see. And then Jean Yoon is just fucking brilliant in what she brings to the table too. You know, it's just like it's a delight. Yeah. So those are season one, season two. Yeah, it's just more of the same. Season two. Um, I really like Business Award. Like with the oh yes, you that know, one was very emotional. Yeah, too. that yeah. one was a great one too. Like the whole dynamic between, especially working with Jeannie in those scenes was was really great. Um, and uh, oh god, there's just I don't know. <laughs> You've listed so many know, yeah. so many episodes. <laughs> I know. It's just you know honestly, it's it's there's so much fun to work on all yeah. of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, when you won best lead actor, yeah, how did that feel? Uh, unbelievable. Like I did, I didn't. I honestly did not think I was gonna win. Mm-hmm. Um, because first year show, like fucking nobody sitting there. I was really happy to be nominated, like, and really surprised to be nominated. You know, like you're nominated with Dan Levy, Eugene Levy, Jerry D, uh, Wayne Kelso, and then me. And I'm going to be yeah, okay. Well, they're gonna one of these guys is gonna take it because they're all seasoned professionals and they're all at the top of their game. And so. Um, when they announced my name, I was like, oh, fuck. Uh, I kind of blacked out, to be honest. And I was so convinced I wasn't going to win. I didn't write a speech. Um, that was, uh, <laughs> my, I, I started writing one my, uh, and I was like, this is bullshit. Why? Like, I started getting mad because I, I wrote this one boring speech originally. And it was like, I was in my fifth page of just thanking everybody. And then I, I, called up our publicist said Jonathan how long do we get for these speeches just asking he said 30 seconds I went fuck this I threw my shit I'm not doing anything and then my wife said you know if you win if you win and you don't have anything to say you're gonna look like an asshole so I thought oh shit okay uh and we were in Montreal Gene and I doing the play version of Kim's Convenience and we finished our show got driven to the to the airport had to fly to Toronto to attend the award ceremony and while we're there I'm sitting there I'm looking at Jeannie and she's she got nominated as well and she's writing her speech I'm like oh fuck she's writing a speech too and I know <laughs> Jean is so smart and articulate and she's gonna I didn't see what she wrote but I knew like oh I better think of something I thought what do I say what do I say and then all I could think of was 
Well, if you win, just talk about what's important to you in that moment. And it was like, okay, I thought, I kind of thought about that. <laughs> That's it. But um, yeah, going up and just like, it, I, I still can't believe it. I still can't. I guess in that speech, um, there's this one thing that I was wondering if you could elaborate on. You look at a, you put, you, there's a pin on your shirt and you point oh, at Oh, that's it. for the second year. I've won twice. <laughs> yes. I'm a two-time CSA <laughs> award winner. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're speaking of the second year? Of the second yes, year. Yes, the second year. I didn't, I didn't prepare a speech for that either because I was convinced even more so. Well, I won it last year. And so this year, they're going to get it right. And it was the exact same Cat, like the same group of guys got nominated again and I was like I thought last year the year before Wayne Kelso was going to get it for Letter Kenny so I was convinced that the in 2018 they're going to go the Academy's going to go okay we gave it to the Asian guy now let's let's get back to regular voting regu- our regularly scheduled sort of program and so when they call my name I was like fuck <laughs> I, I didn't fucking I didn't re- I, I didn't do it again shit and it's like, how do you top a speech from the year before, which just seemed to hit so many notes and was in the moment and it went viral. And I was like, fuck. So I just, again, it was just talk about what's important in that moment. And uh, yeah, it was the the After Me Too pin that was given uh, to me um, at the, uh, actually it was given to me, it was uh, the Actor Awards, that pin. And one of the things that struck me was I spoke about it because... Um, the SAG Awards, the Golden Globe Awards. It was a down in the U.S. It was a like a peer-based award, um, and a lot of the male stars who were wearing pins, yes, uh, the Me Too movement pins, weren't saying anything about it. They just quiet, and they're showing their support by wearing a pin. And um, I remember reading about the backlash about that. And to be honest, I would have wouldn't have said anything either because I kind of felt like with this particular movement. You know, women needed to be heard. They needed to have their voices. And I didn't want to be, I, I, I kind of felt it's not my place to say anything. I will stand. I will support. I will be like, whatever you need me to do, I will do. But I'm not going to talk about it because that's, it's your platform. That's honestly how I felt. But then I was talking to a bunch of, uh, a bunch of, I was talking to a, a lot of advocates about it too. Women who were strongly involved in it. And they were saying, no, we need men to advocate for us, to show, to, to, to be leaders for other men, to say, no, we need, you know, this is something that's important. So I, I just sort of felt that I, I needed to say something, but I didn't want to fuck it up um, because it's too important. And then I knew, again, other people were going to be speaking about it. Uh, but I also wanted the, I wanted to show that, the, you know, that the pin you know, there's an important message behind it and to not lose sight of that with the next thing that sort of happens. And hopefully, you know, I mean, that's what the status quo wants. You want this to sort of go away and sweep it under the rug and it's back to the way it was, which can never happen again. So, um, yeah, I just I needed to point that out. And I don't know how articulate it came across, but I just wanted to speak about how it's time to listen. It's time to start changing um, because it's shameful. The fact that it, it's gotten to this point. And I felt really blissfully ignorant about it, you know. When my social media feed blew up with the Me Too thing, uh, I just felt so naive. Because I'd never, I'd never seen it. And hopefully I'd never done it. I don't think I'd, I'd ever behave that way. Um, but to hear that, you know, my friends, my colleagues, 
all of them, every single woman that I knew had experienced that and on a daily basis was, I, I couldn't believe that. Like it, it just, uh, so that's when, you know, it's, and they, 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 I, you know, I said to my friends, like this really, how do you do, how do you deal with it? And they all just sort of shrug and go, it's just what we do. That's when it's wrong. You know, you should never, ever have to just kind of go, hmm, that's just wait it and deal with it. So, um, yeah, these movements are, are, are gigantic and, um, gigantically important to sort of keep keep in mind and keeping focus and draw attention to and it's not going away and it's got to get better so that's very interesting that you're an actor mm-hmm. on you know plays and um shows and you know movies for 25 years and you really it was something that kind of eluded you hey yeah like, it was like a surprise well, but you gotta realize I'm not saying like that you're but you, no no but <laughs> like, you have but, to realize too like yeah. my level of involvement in any of that like casting couch things it's like yeah, I was like I said, expositional character. I would show up for one day, do it. So, yeah, I worked on a lot of sets, but I was never, I never met producers, right? Directors often would never like. I'd be lucky if we, you know, if we got any line runs in, it'd be just be like, you'd show up. Here's your blocking, go, right? And so you get when you're a day player, you get very little input on anything. You're a chess piece, and that's the only time the director actually talks to you. Is like, okay, blocking's up. Okay, so I see you're going to do this, and you're going to do that, and you're going to do that. You got your lines? Yep. Okay, let's go. I mean, I guess maybe that's that's why I felt naive about it, because I've i never done that. And I'm sort of like, everybody treats everybody with respect, because yeah. that's how it should be. And, um, yeah, and I'd never, I'd never seen it. I'd never experienced it, right? So it's like, because yeah, I'm a male, right? So. Last question about Kim Convenience is season three, yeah. February, January 8th. Yes. What can we expect? The lovely thing about season three is everybody, um, when Jeannie and I, when we first started this, we had the advantage of having lived the characters in the play. So we came into the world with a full understanding of who these characters were. What I keep forgetting is, even though the characters of Janet and Zhang in the play are well inhabited, and I know what my idea of them are, we have new actors playing them. And they, so Andrea... And Simu had to figure out who these characters were and how to find their voice within it, how to portray those voices. Andrew had to play a character that was completely new and figure out, well, who is this character? Same with Nicole, who's playing Shannon, and Ben Boschman, who's playing Gerald. And so the first season is all about them trying to find their voices and find who the characters are, and the writer's trying to figure that out too. And luckily we have Omanapa right there, just anchored all. Season two... Everybody's a little bit more comfortable about it. You know, you, you start to expand, feel a little bit more confident. Season three is really about flexing those muscles and really, really being ambitious. And the, the, the actors know their characters really well by this point. The writers know the characters. They're really sort of pushing them to expand the world, expand what the characters are going through. And so season three is, a lot, you'll see the worlds expand. You'll see Handy, uh, the world of Handy car rental expand you'll see uh janet with her apartment and her roommates expand you'll see that world you'll see the stuff at the church expand with characters like uh, uh pastor nina and amanda brugel coming in and so there's just going to be a lot more of season season three is a very ambitious season um, uh, we think it's a very funny season it's going to be the funniest out of all the three um you're going to have like really great moments um we had you know we noticed in season one a lot of Scenes were two-handers, just two people. 
maybe a third person, right? Season two is a little bit more of that. Maybe a fourth person comes in. Season three was all about ensemble work, like group, lots of things happening. Uh, and the confidence is there. And it is about flexing all of our muscles as a cast and, you know, the, with the writing team and the directors and everything. It's it's just bigger and better. And that's the one thing that we're trying to strive for for Kim's is to keep building and not to sort of lay back on our laurels. The show won a CSA for best comedy, by the way. Um, but not sort of set back and kind of go, okay, we made it. Now we're just going to mail it in. Just do all that stuff. So, um yeah, that's the season three is just without giving any spoilers. That's what it's all about. I was trying to pick up like small notes of spoilers. Yep. I'm like, where nope. is that? <laughs> very well versed, and I can't remember a lot of what we shot. So, um, no, I'm so excited. Congratulations on season three again premiering. Um, right now, what's coming up on TV right now is Canada's Smartest Person Junior. Yeah, it's ending actually. It's ending. Yeah, the last yeah. episode's uh, really? this Wednesday. We only shot six episodes, okay, and the yeah. uh, last episode is next Wednesday. Yeah, what was the inspiration <laughs> for that? Oh, that was uh, not mine. Um, it was funny. Um, the CBC approached me. I mean, why are you choosing something that's more hosting instead of Oh, acting? yeah, that's being an actor for... Yeah, well, that, you know what? It's, um, it's not like I chose to do it. It was offered to me. Um, and uh, yeah, so CBC approached and they said, we've got a show and we think you'd be a great fit for if you'd consider hosting it. And I spoke to Andrew Fung about it because I was a little bit reluctant. I'd never hosted anything before. And Andrew is consummate. Like he's amazing. That's what he does. Like he is one of his strengths, improvisation, but hosting shows. If you want an amazing MC, Andrew Fung is your man. So I was really surprised they didn't ask him at first, but he said, you know, like Paul, you are like, you're working with kids. You are Canada's appa, right? They want that. They want what you bring to the table. They want you. They want your warmth. They want, you know, you to be appa to these kids. And it was a different challenge um, for me for sure. And I was reluctant to do it because I'd never done it before. But it was also on the tail end of Kim's Convenience. We just finished shooting. And I would have had a week off. And then I would have jumped right into shooting Canada's Smartest Person Junior. And it was going to take a month. And that month was earmarked for family time. So I had to talk to my wife about it. And, uh, you know, she said, you have to do this because um, as an actor or as, as for your career, it's going to be great because you need to start showing people. Everybody knows you as Appa. People don't know you as well as Paul. And you need to show that you are more versatile. As much as they love Appa, you, ha you are much more than that. So show that you can do more. And so that's one of the reasons why I agreed to do it. Um, you know, it's and it is a chance to sort of, like I said, it's, it's pushing myself out of my comfort zone, expanding those boundaries and like really learning a different skill set. And I'll tell you, hosting a show is like a million times harder than doing scripted television, right? Like unscripted TV, you have to be present. You have to be quick on your feet. You have to be articulate. You have to be charming. You have to know how to drive that bus. There's so many different demands on a host that uh, audiences just don't realize. And the great hosts are the ones that make it look so easy. You know, you sit there and you kind of go, I could do that. Whenever you see somebody and you go, I can do that, A, you can't, at least not as well as you think you can, and B, they are outstanding at what they do then. Uh, because it is, I've never been more overwhelmed in my life. And the first episode, first half of the episode for uh, our first episode, I look like I'm about to get shot. If you look at me, I think that's all I say. It's like, wow, I'm really wide-eyed and scared shitless. 
um, I get better, way better, uh, as I sort of ease into uh, what the format is and I get the chance to know what's going on. Um, and one of the mistakes I made earlier on, too, was I thought, well, I can just lean on the teleprompter. Teleprompter will be there. I just read. I can read. I'm good at reading. <laughs> um, but, the t you know, and usually the teleprompters are like the size of that screen. And it's like you can read whole chunks of text. And that's how I, you know, I'll read a chunk and I'll just say it again in my words. Uh, but with Canada's Smartest Person Junior, because the cameras are so far away and they wanted to keep the visibility, they want to keep them hidden. They basically, it was the size of a, like a, a small TV. And the font had to be so big for me to be able to read it from that far away that I could only read like three or four letters, words at a time. And it's an awful way to try to read anything off the television set like that's literally what it was and so it got to this point where um i started to lose my confidence because I, I couldn't read it and i couldn't get the lines and stuff like that so they started moving the cameras closer and then i just started just reading and it looked like i was just reading so they have little tricks to fix that like they'll get a steady cam with with a little monitor on it too and the, and you can be reading from the steady cam but it oh. looks like you're looking at the people instead of the instead of the teleprompter little things like that to just sort of clean it up. But then I realized I can't just read the teleprompter. I need to memorize some of these scripts. Um, and the hard thing is the scripts are always changing. So I would go home and I would learn the basic outlines of everything well enough that I could branch off and improvise if I needed to based on gameplay, based on circumstance. You know, yeah, so that was really, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I was exhausted mentally every day coming home from that show i saw you on the, like the show yeah um and i was like that looks crazy because first of all there's so many rules <laughs> for yeah. so many games yeah and i was thinking like that's crazy <laughs> how do the kids remember what's going on yeah well it, you know what a lot of these kids they're they're prepped on the games beforehand they don't know exactly what game is being played uh that particular episode but they are they they know because uh, Canada's Smartest Person has been playing and they use a lot of the same challenges from the adult version for the kid version so these kids they've seen it and so they're familiar already with the games uh, and then yeah it's just it's a question of uh, we, we have fantastic uh, we, uh, producers who, who are like um, in charge of the games you know Court and Deanne they would come in and they, they would make sure they, they would explain to the kids all the rules beforehand and it's amazing editing too you know like the edits uh, some challenges took way longer to actually do in real life than what you see on television. You know, it's just they edit it. I mean, the outcomes are the same, but they just make them way more exciting to watch. In those six categories of like intelligence that they have on the show, which one do you think you'd do the worst in? Which one do you think you'd do the best in? Oh, I know for sure. Musical, worst. I, <laughs> some of these challenges, I was like, really? Who, what the hell? Um, yeah. Yeah, they they had it. Uh, they they showed it um, on last episode. There's this one challenge called Twisty Tune, and I used, I called it the Devil's Anus because it was like horrible. This it was this big metal bar, and it was like Satan's choice. Like you had to like have this wand, and if the wand touched any part oh, of the metal yeah, bar, blah, like, yeah. and you had to play this stupid fucking tune on it. And I tried it, and I was like, I bam bam bam, and I was like, I can't hear the tune. I don't know. I didn't know. I I totally shit the bed on that one. Um, you know, how many notes, how many times did this note play? I'm like, a million? Like, what? So, little things like that, really weak at. My strengths, linguistic. 
anything ling- linguistic, I'm like, that's, I mean, I would hope so. <laughs> I would hope so. Oh, I mean, you, you know? said that reading is one of your strengths. So. Yeah, I mean, just like the, the, just the verbal language. And my yeah. social, my social intelligence was fairly, is fairly high as well. So like I would, I do well in those ones. Uh, logical math, it's hit or miss, man, depending on what mood I'm in. It's like sometimes I can do the math really quick. Other times I'm like, I have no idea. So. For our last question. Yep. Um, as a father now mm-hmm. and as a father on screen and according to Andrew, you know, uh, Canada's upper. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any advice for people who want to pursue a career in the arts, but the parents want them to pursue something more stable yep. or stereotypically yeah. stable? Like, do you have any advice for that, for both like the parent and the child for how to manage that relationship? Yeah, I think... It's a tough one because I see, I know both sides of that really, really intimately. And I'm in a, I'm in an, a weird position because I'm very successful, at least lately, with the choices that I've made. But it's taken a long time for me to get to this point. Um, you know, uh, would I have it any other way? No. I mean, and that's a thing. At the end of the day, I think for the, for, if you're young and you want to pursue it, then pursue it. But no, it's going to be very, very difficult. Um, you know, and you're going to be, you're going to be banging your head against walls. You're going to be questioning yourself, but if you're passionate about it, you're going to have to, you'll find a way, right? You'll find a way, but it's going to be a lot of work. So learn your craft, do your job, be, uh, you know, be prepared and don't be a dick. That's basically what it is. Learn as much as you can, as often as you can, and just you know, keep up the faith, surround yourself with like-minded people, people who support you, get rid of all that negativity. Sometimes it's good to, to have that voice of reason. You know, um, I, I say that my my career really, really started to turn around when I met my wife because um, she taught me to be responsible as well. So you can be passionate about something, but irresponsibly passionate. It's a fine line. It's a really fine line, and it's different for everybody. But with my wife, she taught me to be more responsible, uh, to be just to keep track of things better. And she, you know, we got the saying like she she lets me keep my head on the in the clouds because she keeps my feet firmly planted on the ground. But it goes two ways too, because my wife, she's learned to just relax about certain things too, right? And that's that's when you're in a great relationship, you take the best qualities of each other, and you know you make them your own. Um, so there's that in terms of the parents, I get it. I get it. You're scared and you don't want your kids to be destitute and you want them to be safe and comfortable and have all the things that you didn't have. Uh, it's also very difficult because you never, you haven't seen a lot of success stories. I think, you know, people see doctors, lawyers, engineers, our parents see that because these are respected positions because there's so many success stories, people who've done that and, and worked hard and become that. If you think about it, acting, producing, directing, those are crafts. It's not playtime in the park where you, you're not like these are serious crafts where you have to use a tremendous amount of intelligence, skill, business acumen, all these different things to do this. It's just in a different field. And if you look at it, um, you know, there are more success stories coming and it's happening. And, you know, it's not as destitute as you think. And you know, doors are opening. And in fact, there are probably way more opportunities for your kids, you know, in that field than being a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. Um, but at the end of the day, too, you need to trust in the fact that you've raised your children, that they are intelligent, 
Um, but it's time to let them make their choices because you can't take care of them forever as much as you want to. They got to find their own way. All you can do as parents is to be there to support them if they need that help. But it's not like they're throwing their lives away. They want to build something. And, uh, you know, just because no one's ever done it before doesn't mean it's undoable. You can catch seasons one and two of Kim's Convenience on Netflix and season three on CBC Gem. You can also stream Canada's Smartest Person Junior on CBC Gem. In our show notes, we will also include links to episodes of Train 48, where you can catch a younger Paul. Postal Chronicles is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Matt Falk. Alice Coombs was the co-producer for this episode. Our staff includes Kasun Medigadera and Rostislav Soroka. Special thanks to Colleen Lukes at Meridian Artists. Our main theme song is called Last Energy for the Day by Loyalty Freak Music. And there are other music credits on their website. If you like what you heard, leave us a note on our website. Share us. Follow us on your social medias. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you soon.